They'll know us by the t-shirts that we wear. They'll know us by the way we point and stare at anyone whose sin looks worse than ours, who cannot hide the scars of this curse that we all bear. These are lyrics from a Christian songwriter criticizing the American church for the way we are often known to the world around us by harsh judgment and superficial slogans of faith when, as the song's chorus insists, love, love, love is what we should be known for. I'll let you decide whether the song's on point in its critique of the church, but it's certainly right in its insistence that love should be the mark of the people who belong to Jesus Christ. Love is the mark of those who belong to Christ. Peter would wholeheartedly agree with that statement, and he spends the four verses we'll consider today urging Christians to get busy doing just that, loving one another. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We'll continue our series, Faith in Exile. We're at the tail end of chapter 1 today. We're going to cover verses 22 through 25. And these verses give us a command that's sandwiched between two reasons or, or explanations for the command. The command is simply this, love one another. It's not new. It's not surprising to you to hear the Bible call us to love one another. But there it is. That is the central exhortation in these verses. Love one another. And then that love is sandwiched by two reasons or supports for why we ought to love, how we ought to love. The first of the reasons is that love is the purpose of your salvation. God has saved you through Christ for the purpose of love. And then the second reason on the back end of it is that you have been reborn in the likeness of the one who is love. You've been reborn in the likeness of the one who is love. And so that's the framework of the, the passage or the structure of the passage. And so I'm going to read for you these four verses and then we'll walk through them a bit more closely. So chapter 1, beginning of verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's start with the reason, because that's what Peter starts with. He introduces the command with a kind of a, a therefore. Since this is true, then love one another, right? So before we get to the command and, and the shape of that, let's look at this reason. He says in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, which I summarize as this, since you have believed the gospel message and thereby been cleansed. You have been cleansed by faith in the gospel. There's a few reasons I think that. So he says, 
that the purification of our souls is a result of our obedience to the truth, right? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And I think that that phrase, obedience to the truth, is, is a way of speaking of a believing response to the gospel message about Jesus. Peter himself uses language very similar to that in Acts chapter 15, verse 9, as he's preaching, uh, or excuse me, he's speaking with the council of elders in Jerusalem, and he speaks of God having cleansed, he's speaking of the Gentiles, God has begun to, to work among the Gentiles now, and he says that God has cleansed their hearts by faith. So the cleansing that Peter has in view when someone comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ is that of faith. Cleansing comes by faith. So when he speaks of having purified your souls, I think it's faith that he has in mind. He used the language of obedience to express that kind of faith back in verse 2, the very beginning of this letter, where he said that uh, our election was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ. And I think what he's getting at there is the obedience of the faith, that is, the, the, the obedience of believing upon Christ in the gospel message. That, and then conversion is spoken of that way in a number of places throughout the New Testament. Paul, uh, Paul speaks that way in Romans and elsewhere as well. The obedience of faith. The obedience is belief. The obedience is to hear the truth and to trust it and to submit to it. That's the obedience he has in view here. Theologically, we understand that our souls are not purified by our, by our obedience to God's law, right? If he were to say, having purified your souls by your obedience to the law of God, that would be very much out of step with not only the rest of Peter's theology, but the rest of the New Testament's theology. We are not purified by our obedience to, go, to the law. We are purified by placing our trust in the one who did keep God's law, namely Christ Jesus. So it it would be out of step with the theology throughout the New Testament, and it's not what he says. He doesn't say having purified your souls by your obedience to the law. No, he says by your obedience to the truth. And then I think the word truth is summarized again at the tail end of this passage where he says at the end of verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. I think Peter has in view here the, the summary of gospel truth. The message that is preached about Christ crucified for sinners and raised from the dead. And if you trust in his finished work, you will be saved. You will be cleansed. I think that's what Peter has in view. So when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, I think he's speaking here of conversion. He's speaking of the cleansing of our hearts that Christ accomplishes when we trust upon him. We believe upon him. So it's a particular kind of obedience, namely obedience to the truth about Jesus Christ and his gospel. So he essentially says, so how, so how have your souls been made clean? Through belief in and submission to divine truth, right? That's the way that purification or cleansing would come about. So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Well, I think, again, he's, he's, the content of that truth is pointed at down in verse 25. And it's really, if you want to look backward, what he's been enumerating and celebrating for the first 12 verses 
of this chapter, of this letter, right? It's, it's all of the grace that he has poured out on us through Christ in chapter 1. So our election by God the Father, our rebirth to living hope through Christ's resurrection, our having been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ that he spoke of in the verses we looked at last week, and the unshakable inheritance that he's guarding for us in heaven. I think this is sort of the, the summary of the truth that he's saying that, the, that these Christians have obeyed. And the way you obey that truth is by submitting to it and believing it is true. And so what happens next with this in view, so since you have purified your souls by obedience to the truth, since you have believed upon Christ and the gospel message, he gives us one of, not the only, certainly, but he gives us one of the, the purposes behind our obedience to the truth. Namely, a sincere brotherly love. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for, and that word there implies purpose, or with the result of, or even with the purpose that, right? For a sincere brotherly love. I think he's aiming at, at purpose here. You've, you've been purified by your faith in Christ toward, right, unto a sincere brotherly love. It's interesting to think of that being a purpose of our salvation. We've been saved. We've been placed into Christ for the purpose of love. Love is the language of relationship within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit eternally in love relationship with one another. That's the economy in which God exists. Love was the fuel of Jesus Christ's obedience to the Father in paying the ransom for His people. Christ came for love of His Father. He obeyed for love of His Father and, of course, for love of us. And here Peter tells us that love among the people of God now a horizontal person-to-person -person love among the people of God is one of the great aims of God in his work of redemption. We've been purified through our belief in the gospel with the goal that, or for the purpose of, a sincere brotherly love. And in order for his people to gain a capacity for sincere brotherly love, he had to do some cleanup. He had to do some cleansing work. To, to remove the corrosive effects of sin upon our hearts. Sin buildup gets in the way of our ability to demonstrate sincere brotherly love. I don't know if you've ever seen an old car battery, probably in an engine that hasn't been very well maintained. I'm not going to tell you why I have experience with cars that aren't well maintained. But old car batteries get really nasty, right? The terminals of the battery get this like real weird, grimy, foamy kind of buildup on it where the, the and I read, the, the internet told me this, so it must be true, the hydrogen gas that's released by the battery's acid mixes with the elements in the atmosphere underneath the hood and creates this chemical reaction. And you have this weird, gross corrosion that, that builds all over the terminals of the battery. And what happens if that corrosion doesn't get cleaned away is that the battery is not able to connect to the car's electrical system. And so all the stuff that needs to work when you turn the key in the ignition doesn't work because the battery can't connect to the car's electrical system. And so it has no power. So if you don't clear away the corrosion, 
it can't connect and it loses its source of power. Now, in another strange turn that will probably make you feel really gross about having snacks at the Super Bowl, the best way that I've seen to clear off the corrosion is Coca-Cola. Anybody done that? Pour Coke on that stuff and it just melts it right away. So what's it doing on my stomach? I don't know. I don't want to think about that. All right. The corrosion then in the battery disconnects the car from its source of power. And that's what sin is like for us. That's what sin does in our souls. Fallen human hearts are corroded with sin. And this sin buildup always gets in the way of love. So if the goal of God in our salvation is that there'd be a sincere brotherly love, he had to do something first. He had to do some cleansing work to remove the corrosion of sin in our hearts. What are the ways, think about this, that sin gets in the way of love? How does our sin build up? become an obstacle or a barrier to love of others. Selfishness, just too self-centered. Right? I, I can't think about what somebody else needs or wants or what would, what would help or benefit someone else because I got my eyes too focused on myself and what I want and what I feel. I need to be entertained, need to be comforted, whatever it is. We're just selfish. Pride, maybe it's my needs are more important than somebody else's needs. I don't need to help that person because he doesn't really deserve to be helped. We look down on people. Laziness. Yeah, I could help that neighbor, but it's really going to take up some time and get in the way of my plans for the afternoon. Right? Maybe it's something a bit more pointed, even wicked, like prejudice or hatred. I want to help that kind of person. Maybe it's fear. We have all manner of fears, right? I don't like to be uncomfortable, and I have a feeling that that situation is going to make me uncomfortable, so I'll just avoid it and pretend I didn't see the need, right? There's all kinds of ways that sin in our hearts gets in the way of love. What is it in your heart that most often interferes with the call to love others? Where are you most prone to miss an opportunity to show brotherly love because of the corrosion of sin? We need to be aware of those things and, and take them to the Lord, submit them to Him. So our capacity to love, if He wants us to love, and we have sin corrosion in the way, our capacity to love is deadened without the purifying of our souls. And this is the work accomplished by Jesus Christ in his death on the cross and applied to our souls by faith. Your obedience to the truth is your recognition that what Christ did on the cross for you really is true and really is the only hope of your salvation and your standing with God. And so as we trust in him, he purifies our souls. He removes the corrosion of sin that gets in the way. So basically, summing up verse 22, since love among God's people is one main reason for your redemption, well, he's going to state the obvious in the form of a command. Love one another. Since God intends by your salvation 
for you to love one another, well then, love one another, right? It really is, it, it, it's stated that simply and that plainly. And so we can see that the first reason that's given, our belief in the gospel, leads us straight into the central exhortation of these verses. Love one another. And is there any more elemental, foundational, or important command to the church of Jesus than this? Jesus tells us in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven that the entirety of God's law is summed up in these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. Right? He said it in a few more words than that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So he spelled out a little bit about what that looks like. But love of God and love of neighbor is what Jesus says. That's what the law is all about. That's what obedience to God is all about. The whole result and upshot of, of obedience to God and following his commands is love. We love him. We love each other. That's what it comes down to. It, is, it cannot get more simple, more basic, more foundational than that. So perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that this is just the place where churches so often fail, where the enemy throws so many landmines and so many darts our way to keep us from loving one another well, to make us suspicious of one another, distrusting of one another, judgmental toward one another. It's no surprise if this is so important to God among his people that the enemy of our souls would take aim here. We know that this was on Jesus' mind as he prepared to go to the cross. His message to his disciples in John chapter 13, he says this, this famous verse, uh, 1334, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Well, that's not the new part. The new part is this, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Boy, that raises the stakes a bit, doesn't it? How did Jesus love us? He gave himself up for us. That's how we're to love. We're to give of ourselves. We're to give ourselves up for the benefit of another. So if it's so important, right, that love is what we got to do, love should characterize the, the people of God, and, and this is what Jesus was aiming at in, uh, in what he accomplished on the cross, what does it look like, right? We need to know what is love. What would love look like if we're living it out? And so Peter helpfully gives us four words to give us a picture. Four words to give us a picture of what this kind of love should look like. Our love for one another in the church is to be first sincere. Sincere. The literal translation of the Greek word behind this would be without hypocrisy. Our love should be honest. Our love should be without guile or, or, or duplicity, right? Where we've got kind of ulterior motives. I'll serve you, I'll love you, but really I'm hoping to get something in return. That's not sincere love. That's self-motivated love. That's selfish love. Our love should be sincere. Our love should be brotherly. The word there is Philadelphia which is really a compound word, adelphos, which is brother, and phileo, which is love. So love of brother or love of brothers 
is what Philadelphia means. Maybe that's why they call it the city of brotherly love. They're literally just translating the Greek word. Our love is to be brotherly. And I think there's, I think there's two things about brotherly love here that, that uh, there's two things that that term communicates about what love should be like. Number one, I think, is it should be warm, right? I, I think our love for one another is, is warm. Yeah, brothers can rile each other up. I know that. I have my own brother. I have kids in my house who have brothers. And yeah, they can rile each other up. But there's often a warmth and, and an affection between brothers that's unlike most other relationships. There, there should be a sense of kind of camaraderie and like-mindedness. And we're in this together, right? a warmth to our love for each other in the church. The second aspect of that, I think, that brotherly draws out is committed. It's, it's a committed kind of love. That, that familial bond implies durability and longevity. We go through stuff. We might hurt each other. But at the end of the day, you're still my brother. I still love you. I'm still with you, right? When things get tough and your back's up against the wall, I'm going to be there because you're my brother, right? There's a, there's a sense of this can, in, the love of a brother can endure the, the hardships and surprises of life and even relationships, right? Indeed, your relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ will outlast every one of your relationships with non-believers, even family members, member of your family who's not a believer, your relationship to any other Christian will outlast that one because it's eternal and you'll be with them for eternity. So our love should be brotherly toward each other. I think that speaks of warmth and commitment in our love to each other. We can endure. The third word he gives us is earnest. He says, love one another earnestly. The word here, it, it means fervent serious, intense, you might even say. It's the same Greek word that's used in Luke twenty-two forty-four of Jesus praying in Gethsemane, right before he's arrested and led off to, to trial. And it's the passage where famously he's praying and, and it says his sweat became like drops of blood that fell to the ground. Well, it said right before that, that he was praying more earnestly with that same word. And his sweat became like drops of blood. So you get a sense of the investment, the energy, the, the emotional investment that Jesus has in this prayer. And that's the word that describes our love for each other. Our love for other Christians, and particularly those, within, those with whom you've covenanted in the local church, is to be intense, serious love. Our love is to be pure. Pure. You see that there at the end of verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Pure means undiluted. Unmixed. It's not love with a little bit of something else thrown in. It's uncontaminated love. Pure love. So that gives us an idea of what this love is supposed to look like, right? Sincere, brotherly, earnest, pure. And a reminder of the context will help us to see how God intends to use this kind of love among his people 
to further his own purposes in the world. And the context, if you remember, is holiness. The verses we looked at last week, beginning with 13, begin to take on the shape of what God wants his people to be in the world is holy. Right? Look back there at verse... Where is it? Verse 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 15, that's where I meant to go, right before that. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because I'm holy, you should be holy, right? So holiness, right? Peter exhorted believers to be like God, right? Distinct, holy, unique, in the midst of a godless, inhospitable world, God calls the church of Jesus to distinctness, uniqueness, separateness. Not separateness of like, I live over here and you live over there. But the the manner of life and character of God's church is to be distinct and separate. And you know what the chief distinction of God's people will be within the world? Love. That's it. Love one another among the people of God. Love within the church is the main distinction between the church and the world. So if a church fails here, their witness in the world is nullified. This is what God calls us to. Jesus himself said in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What? If you have love for one another. So our love for each other within the church is intended to be a testimony to the world around us. They're different. There's something unique here. There's something that causes these people to be devoted to each other and committed to each other and serving each other in ways that are unusual in the world. I don't see the same kind of love at the senior center or the same kind of love in the the social clubs that I'm a part of or the same kind of love at the bar where I hang out looking for friends. That's not the kind of love I see anywhere else. It's only in the church. That's what it's supposed to do. Friends, this should give us serious pause. This description of love, these four words that Peter gives us, and the high purpose that God places upon the church's love should cause us to examine ourselves. How are we doing? Just ask that question. How are we doing with this love in our own lives as the church is scattered and together as a community? If you're anything like me, you could bring to your mind quite readily ways in which you have failed to love others like this, even in just the past week. Even my neighbors who live in my house with me, I have not always extended sincere, brotherly, earnest, pure love. I'm being honest. The love to which God is calling us in these verses is costly. It will be hard. It will cost us time and convenience. It may cost us money and other resources. It will require us to humble ourselves and seek someone else's benefit. It will require us to pay attention to the lives of others in our church and in our families, to see them, to understand their struggles, 
It will require us to be creative and self-sacrificing in the ways we come alongside one another. We can't all meet everybody's need in every way, but we should all be willing and attentive to do something, right? In fact, hard is probably not a strong enough word to say this will be hard. A Sunday school teacher of ours in Houston always used to say, living the Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. And I think what he's getting at there, what he's pointing us to is the undeniable reality that in order to carry out the commands of Christ, we need the presence and power of the Spirit of Christ. This kind of love is supernatural. The world does not have it because sinners are not capable of it in themselves. It is beyond fallen human capacity to drum this up. How can I put someone else's well-being and joy ahead of my own? How is the church of Jesus Christ supposed to cultivate this sort of earnest, sincere, pure, brotherly love? That is what Peter answers in the next verse. Look with me at verse 23. He's given the command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So this is the reason on the back end of the command. And it's basically this, you've been born again. If the first reason we ought to love one another is that he's purified our souls by by believing in the gospel, then the second reason is this, you've been born again. You've been born again in his likeness, the one who is love. So how can we love like this? Since, that is because, for you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. The imperishable seed of the word. Because we've been born again by the imperishable seed of the word, we have his love planted into our hearts to give away to others. That's what rebirth accomplishes. Think about the, the, the seed here, the Greek word spora, where he says the, the, you've been born again to, by the seed of the word of God. There's two important things about the seed that we see. Number one is that the seed is what brings new life. And that's true anywhere across the board in our world. The seed brings new life. Life comes from the seed. Think about plants. I have a seed. I put it under the earth. What comes forth? The plant with life came from the seed. That's where it started. Works the same way in human reproduction. The human seed brings forth a new human life. And it's the same in spiritual rebirth. You've been born again by the seed of the word of God. So if the seed of the word of God has been planted in your heart, guess what? It creates new spiritual life. You're born again. That's what that means. So the seed is what brings the life, the seed of the word. And the second truth about this that's important is to note that the life that the seed brings forth is always of its kind. The kind of life that comes from the seed is the same kind of life as the seed. An apple seed never brings forth an orange tree. A human seed never brings forth a dog. It's always a human. And it's the same, spiritually speaking. 
Since then, we've been born anew by the seed of the word of God. Then guess what? The life that it brings forth in us is his life. We're born again with his life in us. Paul expressed something very similar to that in Galatians when he said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ within me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, right? He lives through us. This is the only way it's possible for us to have this kind of love is that we have his kind of life. He's made us born again by the seed of his word so that his life now springs forth from us and it will spring forth in love. In fact, love is the primary evidence that we've been born of God. I don't know if you've met people who say that they're Christians, say that they've trusted Jesus. Yeah, God and I are good, but they're like the most angry, grumpy, rude, unkind people you can think of. Something's not right here. If you've been born of God, you love. Love is the evidence that we've been born of God. There's no better place to illustrate this than in the book of 1 John, one of those short letters that the Apostle John wrote at the back of the New Testament. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Why do we love? Because he's love and he's in us. We've been born of him. Just a few verses later, in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Speaking there of that very tension that I spoke of. Somebody who claims to love God, but they hate their neighbor, something's not right. Because love is the evidence of rebirth. If you've been born again by the seed of the word of God, love will come forth in your life in increasing measure. We don't instantaneously on day one become Mother Teresa in terms of our love for people, right? It, it, it takes time. It takes life. It takes relationship. It takes trial and error. It takes humility. It takes growth. But love will begin to grow in our lives if we've been born again by the word, the seed of the word of God. And then I think what Peter is doing with this quotation in verse 24, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. I think what he's doing here is, is reminding you that the seed that you've been born with is not a fleeting, temporary thing. It's eternal. He said you've been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. He really likes that word, doesn't he? He is all over the imperishability, the eternality, the sturdiness, the durability of what God has done for us in Christ. It's all over chapter 1 of 1 Peter. But look at this. All flesh is like grass. All its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But what? The word of the Lord remains forever. It's eternal. And if you've been born with the eternal seed of the word of God, guess what you are? You're eternal. You have his eternal love growing in you. This is the kind of life that he's called his people to. He calls his people who he has caused to be born again 
and he's purified their souls, cleaned off the corrosion of sin from our hearts for the purpose of sincere brotherly love within the church. And the way that we can live that out is because we have the seed of God's love within us that's growing and springing forth. Quote Galatians one more time. Verse you're probably familiar with, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love's the first one it mentions, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You don't get to pick and choose which fruit of the Spirit you want to grow, right? Because if the Spirit's there, that's what he's going to be growing. But love is chief among them. This is what he calls us to. And we need his life within us. We need his power at work in us for this to work its way out. So I think it calls us to self-examination. It calls us to look at our own lives and, and relationships. Look at how we're even engaging with and treating others within our church, within our family, within our neighborhoods, particularly the love among other Christians, I think is what Peter has in view here. Do we see, do I see this fruit of love? growing or is there something in the way that's stifling it that's pressing it down into the dirt no you cannot come up you cannot grow we need to bring those things to the Lord and ask for his grace for his cleansing for his mercy and then I think again just within the context of of God's purpose for the church within this hostile inhospitable world where we're living as exiles right it's the whole kind of theme of peter's identifying us as the people who belong to god who don't belong to the world and it's in that context that we're supposed to live this love out with one another so the way we do that determines how effective our church's witnesses in perry hall and parkville northeast baltimore is our witness effective? Is it honest? Is it accurate? Do when people look at Imprint Community Church, do they see the love of Jesus here? That's, that's, that's the, the measure, the most important measure of the faithfulness of, of a church. We have no better example of love than what Christ himself has done for us. No greater love has a man than that he laid down his life for his friends. So Jesus said, and then he did it. He laid down his life for us. This morning we have the opportunity to take of the bread and cup that represent for us the, the shed blood and broken body of the Lord Jesus on the cross. As a reminder, as a picture of the kind of love that he's called us to. We usually emphasize in communion the, 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 the union that we have with Christ, the relationship we have now with God because of Christ, which is right and good. But there's a, there's a brother to brother, sister to sister, brother, sister, love and community and communion that we share as well. And when we partake of the supper, we're reminded here. We do this in remembrance of him, and we do this as a reminder to ourselves that we all partake of the same Christ, 
the same Christ, the same blood that was shed, the same body that was broken. And because we partake of the same Christ and share in that same love, that's the kind of love that we ought to have and cultivate for one another. We need God's help for that. We need his grace. I'm going to pray, uh, and then I'll invite you in just a moment to, to come forward and receive the elements of the supper, and we'll take it together. Let's, let me pray for us.